Amen. Thank you for reading, Gary. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we pray now as the psalmist prayed that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word. Help us, Lord, for your glory. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, this is quite a remarkable passage, and most times when people approach this passage to teach it, they approach it from the perspective of how one should do pastoral ministry. And that's good, because there's a lot to learn here about how one should lead or shepherd Christ's church. But I want us to look at this passage this morning from a broader perspective, because not only do we see here an example of faithful pastoral ministry as Paul, we'll see this in a little bit, as Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus and he's admonishing them to care for Christ's church, not only do we see a faithful model of pastoral ministry, we also see here the characteristics of a gospel church. So in this passage, we see that Paul is leading and he's admonishing others to lead in such a way that it will produce a certain type of church. And so that's kind of the question I want us to have in mind this morning. If, if Paul is leading this way, if Paul's admonishing the elders in the church of Ephesus to lead this way, then what is he after? What is he trying to produce out of that type of leadership? What type of church would result if one were to lead the church in this way? And so as we walk through this passage, I believe we will see five characteristics or five marks of a gospel church. The five characteristics are as follows. Community, truth, mission, protection, and generosity. Okay, Community, truth, Mission, protection, and generosity. Now, before we jump into our first one, I want to just say a word here about the context. In the book of Acts, if you go back to chapter 18, verse 23, you see there that it marks the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, Paul leaves Antioch, which is where his home church was located. He travels through Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the churches. And then as you leave chapter 18 and come into chapter 19, which we looked at last week, we see that Paul spent three years ministering in Ephesus until he was run out of the town. Then after Paul's ministry in Ephesus, Paul uh, states that he was determined to travel to Jerusalem and then later to Rome. Okay, So you find that in chapter 19, verse 21. Luke records, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so then we come into chapter 20, which we're, that's where we are this morning. And the beginning of Acts chapter 20, Luke records for us Paul's travels to Jerusalem. There's a lot of stops along the way, but then Paul finds himself in Miletus. That's our passage this morning. Miletus was a city that was closely, relatively close uh, to the city of Ephesus. And so from Miletus, Paul calls the leaders of the church in Ephesus to Miletus so that he might meet with them and he might address them. And these are men that Paul would have known well, right? Because he ministered in Ephesus for three years. He was there with them. He served with them. And what Luke is doing here in our passage this morning is he is recording those words that Paul spoke to the leaders in Ephesus. He's recording the address that Paul gave to those elders in Ephesus. Now with that in mind, let's consider these marks of a church that emerge out of this address that Paul gave to the leaders in Ephesus. The first mark is community. 
You see it there in verse 17 to 19 of our text. Look there and we read. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, notice here as we read, as we read these verses that Paul did life for three years in Ephesus with the Ephesians. He says in verse 13, I, or verse 18, I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. So Paul says, I was with you. I was among you. And notice that it wasn't always easy for Paul to be there. You see that in verse 19. He says, I was serving you with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So Paul says, listen, when I was with you, when I was with you in Ephesus, the Jews were after me. I was in danger, but I was with you. I was among you. For three years, Ephesians, I was with you. As long as God had me in Ephesus, I was among you. You know, one of the reasons why this passage and these verses are so loved, and one of the reasons why this passage is so compelling is because it's so personal. And if you read through here, it's so personal. I mean, you see tears and you see embracing. If you skip down to uh, verse 37 of chapter 20, this is when Paul's about to leave and we read there, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. So when it came time for Paul to leave the Ephesian elders, it was like, it was like a military family embracing and weeping and saying goodbye because a family member has been assigned to a long deployment. There was weeping and embracing. This is personal. It's intimate. And you know, one of the things as we read this passage that we recognize is that we live in a society that longs for community. Now, this is, we long for relationship. We long for community. We long for intimacy with others. This is one of the reasons why there's such an explosion in social media, right? Facebook and Instagram and other forms of social media. We live in a society that longs for community. But we also live in a society that is uneasy about commitment. And that poses a problem. The reason why that poses a problem is because true community is born out of commitment. The home group that uh, my family is a part of this semester, we meet at my house, and uh, the book we're going through is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller makes this point really well in the book uh, that he's written on marriage. He makes the point that increasingly we find in our society that there are folks who desire the intimacy of a romantic relationship, but without the commitment of marriage. And so it's not too uncommon to hear folks say something like, why do I need a piece of paper, referring to marriage, right? Why do I need a piece of paper to love another person? It only complicates things. But really what they're saying, when one says that, really what one is saying is, I really don't love you that much. Not enough to commit for good. I want a way out. And in the end, that always undermines intimacy. Because in that type of situation, either one or both partners are going to feel like, I can't open myself up. I can't be fully vulnerable with you if I know I must perform and measure up in order for you to stay. 
You see, the richest and most fulfilling marriages are those that are nurtured in a context of covenant, in a context of commitment, in which both partners say, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And through the tears and the trials and the hardships of life, they weather the storms while loving and serving and forgiving each other. I think it's fairly easy to see how that applies, this principle applies to marriage, but how does that apply to the church? Well, there are distinctions to be made, but the principle is the same. Commitment is the basis for real, true, deep community. Sometimes you hear people say, I want to to find a church where I can experience community. I want to have meaningful relationships. But listen, my friends, one thing we have to understand is that we won't experience true community in a church without commitment. Being committed means we're present with one another. We're among one another. Sometimes when we don't feel like it, when things are exciting, when things aren't exciting, when things are difficult, when things are hard, we're present, we're engaged, we're with each other. One of the things we see from this passage, and it's all throughout the New Testament, is you can't do church from a distance, right? It's just impossible. This is the reason why internet church is such a bad idea, okay? Because the church is an assembly of redeemed people. The church is flesh and blood. And so therefore, to experience true community assumes, to experience true community in the context of a church, assumes commitment. Commitment to other people. It's one of the reasons why we have a church covenant. We covenant to be committed to one another as a church body. You know, my friends, the only kind of community that, if if you're looking at this passage and you see there's tears, they're embracing, they love each other, they care for each other, if you long for that, understand, my friends, that the only kind of community that will move you to tears comes through the faithfulness and sacrifice of commitment. So we see there's community in this gospel church. The second mark we see of a gospel church is truth. And you see it in verses 20 and 21 of our text. Look there and we read these words. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul here describes his ministry in Ephesus, notice the emphasis that he places on teaching and instruction. If you follow the verbal forms there, you see that he describes his ministry as declaring, as teaching, and as testifying. So he's declaring, he's teaching, he's testifying to the truth. And then if you go further down in the passage, as he is leaving uh, the elders in Ephesus to move on, he commends them to this truth. So you see it in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. The word of His grace would be the Bible or the gospel, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So putting that together, this is essentially what Paul is saying. Ephesian elders, this is what I did among you. I declared the truth. I taught the truth. I testified to the truth. And now as I am leaving, I am committing you to that truth. I'm committing you to that message. I'm committing you to that body of knowledge that will cause you to grow and flourish and endure. This is not the end of that message. No, you give yourself over and over again to this message, to this truth. 
There's so many things as we look at verses 20 and 21 in our passage that we could say about Paul's ministry of the word in Ephesus. But just a few quick observations. Notice that his ministry of the word in Ephesus was both bold and beneficial. It was bold and beneficial. You see that in verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you. So Paul was bold. He was unafraid. If you skip down to verse 21, he says, I did not shrink. He states it again. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. But notice, and this is so important as we think about the ministry of the word, whether it's public or whether it's private in terms of personal conversation, notice that his ministry of the word was not caustic or harsh or uncaring. Bold does not mean arrogant. He says, I did not shrink from declaring, here it is, anything that was profitable, anything that was of benefit. So in other words, he was bold, he was unafraid for their good. He was bold and unafraid for their benefit. He was unafraid because he loved them and wanted to do them good. Notice that the ministry of the word that the Apostle Paul engaged in was not only bold and beneficial, it was also public and personal. He says, I taught you in public and from house to house. So public would be like in a form like this, in this type of context where he was delivering public teaching. But then also personal, and we could think about, as he talks about going house to house, we could think about our ministry of home groups here at Berea where we gather together around the Word and relationally discuss and apply the Word to our lives. And and we want to ask the question, why is it that Paul, when he goes to Ephesus, why is his ministry of the Word both public and personal? Well, because God has designed the ministry of the Word to suit our needs. He's designed the ministry of the Word to care for us in the way that we need to be cared for. You see, it's important for us to come and to hear a sermon, right? That's important for us. That's for our spiritual good. But we need more than a sermon. We need a community where the Word is relationally communicated and applied to our lives. So the ministry of the Word must be public and personal. Notice it's also this ministry of the Word that Paul engaged in was gospel-centered. He says that he was testifying of repentance and faith. Now, this is the call of the gospel, right? Now, we've seen this over and over again in the book of Acts, this good news that God in his mercy and grace has offered a substitute for us in Jesus so that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. Well, this good news, how are we to respond to it? Over and over again, we see in the New Testament and specifically in the book of Acts, the response to this good news is to repent and believe, repent and and believe. Repentance means that we turn from our sins and we turn to God. And believe means that we place our faith in Jesus as our only and all-sufficient Savior. As we think about this ministry of the Word being gospel-centered, notice that actually in verse 32, the Word that Paul commends them to, he describes as the Word of His grace. Now, why would Paul refer to the Bible as the word of his grace? Because the whole Bible is a word of grace, right? The whole Bible is the story of God's purpose and plan to redeem us through the grace of his son, Jesus. And so this ministry of the word that Paul engages in is bold and beneficial. It's public and personal. It's gospel-centered. But again, why? Why would Paul place such an emphasis on teaching while he was in Ephesus? And here's the reason, because he knew, he knew that we needed to be in a community that is grounded and shaped by the Word of God. 
Understand, my friends, you don't just need a quiet time, right? Getting alone by yourself, reading the Bible, praying, that's good. We need to do that. You don't just need to download sermons and listen to sermons. That's good, and that can be beneficial. But in addition to those things, we need to be immersed in a word-centered community. And so Paul led in Ephesus in such a way that he was trying to produce a word-centered community. In order for the word to get in us, in order for the word to shape our thinking, in order for the word to sink deep into our hearts and change us, we need to be immersed into a community that is committed to the word. That's what a gospel church, that's a significant characteristic of a gospel church and what a gospel church looks like. So a gospel church is marked by community. It's marked by the truth or the word. And then third, it's marked by mission. Look there in verses 20 to 22 and we read these words. Um, I'm sorry, 22 to 24, and we read these words. He says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, to understand Paul's words here, we need to think about them in light of something Jesus said. Uh, Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, it's interesting because when Jesus makes that statement in the Gospel of Mark, it's in Mark chapter 8, verse 32, he makes this statement that, uh, that, that you must take up your cross and you must follow him. Then after that, after chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark, and there's 16 chapters in that Gospel, after that statement, the rest of the Gospel of Mark is a record of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem where he knows that the religious leaders will arrest him and crucify him. And that sequence of events is actually followed in every Gospel account, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John. You get about halfway through the Gospel, Jesus announces who he is, his intention to die. The rest of the Gospel accounts then are a record of his way to Jerusalem and then his subsequent death and resurrection. Now the reason I point that out is because at this point in the book of Acts, Luke's record of Paul's ministry begins to follow a similar pattern. So Paul states in his third missionary journey, he states that he is intent on going to Jerusalem. And then he says here in our text that he's going not knowing what will happen to him, except that the Holy Spirit testifies that there will be imprisonment and afflictions that await him along the way. So you see, at this point in the book of Acts, Luke is showing us that Paul, in a very real sense, is following Jesus to Jerusalem. And in the same way that Jesus headed to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to die and then was handed over to Rome, Paul now sets out towards Jerusalem. He's taking up his cross and following Jesus, and then subsequently will be arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to Rome. Paul is following Jesus in in, in like a literal way to Jerusalem to die. Notice as Paul does this, though, notice his resignation and his resolve. You see that he is resigned to Christ, and he is resolved to fulfill Christ's mission. So you see it there in verse 24. He says, but I do not, it's a remarkable verse here, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. 
If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. John Piper's paraphrase of this verse is, I am nothing, I just have a job, I want to finish my job, then drop dead and receive my reward. Paul's sold out, right? He's absolutely committed to this mission. And what Paul is embodying here for the Ephesians, for the church in Ephesus, what he's embodying here is what God is calling all of them to, to be a people and a community on mission for the advance of the gospel. Whether they're in Ephesus or whether they're on their way to Jerusalem or Rome, they are to live lives resigned to Christ and fully resolved to fulfill his mission. A mission that no doubt involves risk and danger and suffering. Uh, We just took, as a church, we just uh, took our first missions trip to Madagascar. And we are partnering with a missionary family there, Chandler and Kelly Snyder, to reach the Antondrui people. Our first mission team that went were Bobby and Julia Brown. And we're planning now for the next trip as well. We're beginning to make preparations for that. And uh, I remember Bobby and Julia sharing with us when they came back, they shared with me that when they were meeting with the Snyders, one time they were talking to Chandler about the scriptures and Bobby mentioned this passage to Chandler and how it challenged him. But Bobby couldn't remember where the verse was found, where it was in Acts. He just says, I remember reading it in Acts and it was really challenging me. And, uh, And he asked Chandler, do you know the reference for that verse? And Chandler lifted up his sleeve, and the reference was tattooed on the underside of his forearm. Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, whether God calls us here in Augusta, or whether he calls us to Madagascar, or whether he calls us to the unreached, other unreached peoples across the globe, we are to be a people, a community that is resigned to Christ and resolved to fulfill his mission. So a gospel church is marked by community. It's marked by the truth. It's marked by mission. Notice fourth, it's marked by protection. We see this beginning in verse 25. We read these words, And now behold... Paul says, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." Now, if you look at these seven verses or so, there's essentially two admonitions that Paul directs towards the elders in Ephesus. The first is found in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And the second is found in verse 31. Be alert. So he tells them, be attentive and be alert. 
But why are they to be attentive? Why are they to be alert? Well, because there's danger, right? You see that in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So there is danger for the elders. There's danger for the church. There is danger. And and as we think about this, we know Paul knew what physical danger was, right? I mean, Paul had been whipped. He'd been beaten. uh, His life had been threatened. But Paul here is not primarily speaking of physical danger. Rather, he is speaking of spiritual danger. He says that there will be some who will come and they will seek to undermine, to distort the precious truth, the precious knowledge of the truth that I have entrusted to you. This knowledge that leads you to God and allows you to experience His grace. And Paul speaks of this in the most serious of terms. In fact, in Paul's mind, to be led astray to believe false ideas about God, false ideas about how we can know God, and false ideas about how we can experience His grace is worse than any physical threat or danger we might encounter in this life. Paul says, listen, spiritually speaking, the world is a dangerous place. And therefore, he's admonishing the elders in Ephesus to protect themselves and to protect the church. You might be here this morning and perhaps you're a non-Christian or maybe you say, I'm not sure if I'm a believer. Or maybe you're a Christian and you have this mentality, this mindset in which you, you ask the question, you know, why would I want to commit myself? Why would I want to yield myself to a body of leaders or to a group of people to watch over my spiritual life? I mean, why would I, even, why would I want to be a part of that? Why would I want to do that? Isn't religion personal? Isn't religion private? Well, notice how Paul speaks of Christianity in these verses. Paul speaks here in terms of a shepherd and a flock. It's inherently communal. You see there in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Or verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So in this analogy, the elders are the shepherds, the church is the flock, and there are wolves, there are individuals or groups of people who want to bring spiritual ruin to the flock. And do you see what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying that we all need a shepherd. Everybody needs a shepherd. Shepherds are supposed to be strong and tender. They're supposed to be courageous and loving. They're to defend their flocks out of a genuine interest and concern for their sheep. This is actually this idea of shepherd is a a pretty significant theme in the Bible. Uh, In the Old Testament, one of the most loved passages in all of Scripture is Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and in John chapter 10, verse 11, he makes an amazing declaration, identifying himself with the shepherd of Psalm 23. He says, I am the good shepherd. But then, you know, this theme of shepherd doesn't stop there. Then we see as we go further along in the New Testament that God gives his people shepherds to lead them, to guide them, to protect them. And if you want to experience God's shepherd-like care, one of the ways that we experience that, one of the ways we do that is by investing ourselves in a church. In a church, God extends to us His shepherd-like care through the faithful leaders of the church. And why? 
because we all need a shepherd. This is by God's design. And listen, this isn't just for members of a church. This is for elders too. This is one of the reasons why there's a plurality of elders. At our church, we have five elders because the elders need a shepherd. I need a shepherd. We shepherd one another. We submit to one another. We all need a shepherd. This is one of the ways that God cares for us and sustains us and protects us. It's through the faithful shepherding love and care of His church. Fifth mark of a church. We've seen community. We've seen truth. We've seen mission. uh, We've seen protection. And the fifth mark is generosity. This is found in verses 33 to 35. Look there. We read these words. Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul's ministry was a model of Jesus' words that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you know, if you think about it, as we go back over these verses, if you think about it, everything we've seen so far in this passage is marked by generosity. It's marked by freely giving and sharing of yourself for the good of others. It runs through the entire passage. Now, we talked about the first mark of a gospel church's community. And as we talked about that, remember, it was Paul who was saying, I was with you. I gave myself to you. I was among you. I was committed to you for your good. That's generosity, right? Or we talked about the second mark of a gospel church, it's truth. And I love the way Paul describes his ministry of the word in Ephesus in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, I was serving you. And how was Paul serving them? Then he goes on to say, I was serving you. And this is how, by declaring, by teaching, and by testifying to the truth. This is what Paul's service looked like among them. So so Paul's ministry of the word was not to inflate his ego. Paul's ministry of the word was not to boost his credentials. Rather, it was an act of service offered on their behalf for their good. That's generosity. And then as you think about mission, the third mark that we considered of a gospel church, you see from the passage that mission has redefined what Paul esteems to be valuable or worthwhile. Paul has come to believe that true value is not measured by what I get, but it is measured by what brings God glory and is for the eternal good of others. And then protection. As we think about protection, you know, one of the points we made is that we shouldn't go it alone. Now, Paul is telling them to, to care for the flock, to protect the flock. Why? Because this is the way, by God's design, that he's intended to protect us. We shouldn't go it alone. But listen, you shouldn't go it alone, not only for your sake, but also for the sake of others. When we were making that point, I essentially appealed to you on the basis of your self-interest. I said, don't go it alone because you don't want to be led astray. You don't want to be spiritually shipwrecked. So don't go it alone. You need a community. You need to be in a church. But listen, there's another reason why we should be committed to a church. And it's for the sake of others. It's for the sake of others. It's for the person who's sitting beside you this morning to say, I'm here, I'm present, I'm committed, not just for my protection, but for your protection. That's generosity as well. 
In all these ways, a gospel community should be marked by generosity, by a generous spirit that looks to serve and do good for the sake of others. And this makes entirely this entirely makes sense, right? If we consider that we are a people who are marked by a savior who gave everything, even his own life for our eternal good. I hope that this vision of a gospel church is compelling to you. I would hope that each one of us would say, man, I I, I long to be a part of a true community like that that's marked by life-changing truth, risk-taking mission, loving protection, open-handed generosity. And listen, for all those reasons, we should love and work. We should love the church and we should work and pray to see the church become all that she is intended to be. But there's another reason why we should love the church. And we'll close with this. The final reason why we should love and care for the church is because Christ loves the church. Do you notice how Paul identifies the church in verse 28? He's speaking to the elders there and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Here it is, which he obtained with his own blood. What does Christ think of the church? He loves her. And how much does Christ love the church? He loved her so much that he gave everything to win her back and redeem her for himself. He shed his own blood. And then Paul, on the basis of that, says, So therefore, Ephesians elders, love her, care for her, protect her with all her inadequacies, with all her weaknesses, with all her deficiencies, Christ loves her. He died for her redemption. Richard Baxter, who was a pastor a long, long time ago, wrote these words. Listen to this. And he's speaking to pastors, but it applies to all of us as Christians. Quote, Can you not hear Christ saying, Did I die for these people, and will you then refuse to look after them? Were they worthy of my blood, and are they not worthy of your labor? Did I come down from heaven to seek and to save that which was lost, and will you refuse to go next door to the next street or village to seek them? How small is your labor compared to mine? I debased myself to do this, but it is your honor to be so employed. Have I done and suffered so much for their salvation, and will you refuse that little that lies upon your hands? And then listen to these last words. Every time we look upon our congregations, every time you look toward one another, let us believingly remember that they are purchased by Christ's blood and that therefore they should be highly regarded by us. End of quote. My friends, if we are to love Christ, we must love what he loves. And Christ loves, is in crazy love with his church. He is in crazy love with his community that he has redeemed by his own blood. May we pray and may we work for the church to be all that God would have it to be. A community that's marked by the word, by mission, by protection, by generosity. Let's pray. God, we thank you 
that you have loved us so much in Christ that Christ shed his own blood for our redemption. Lord, help us to understand not only the ramifications of that personally, but also to understand what that means for us in terms of living in a community with other believers, to being identified as your church and what it means to be the church. Lord, we pray that as you help us to grasp that reality, that we would increasingly become the church you want us to be, a community that is, in fact, marked by the truth, by mission, by protection, by generosity. Father, do that in us for your glory. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.